It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nico Hines, world editor of The Daily Beast. Hey, Nico, I hope you don't mind. We borrowed your monarch for a few days. Uh, in fact, I, I, I look at the uh, uh, headline of the uh, Evening Standard uh, calling Charles the King of France. Well, if you guys really are growing tired of this Republic experiment you've been uh, trying out for the last few years, you know, I'm sure we could come to some kind of arrangement. <laughs> OK, with us as well. Uh, independent journalist uh, Aisha Ghul Sert, a, f- a firm Republican, I take it. What can I say? Hey, I'm from Turkey. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Freelance reporter Amar Abed Rabo is in our midst as well. How are you? All good. All good. Thank you. OK. Uh, Richard Verli is France and Europe correspondent for Swiss, na- Swiss newspaper uh, Blick. There's not one but two heads of state right now in France, by the way. The Pope is in Marseille. That's correct, as we are speaking. Right, so that's, uh, there, there you go. You can, by the way, listen, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. Is it all over in a flash for a conflict that dates back to Soviet times? After winning a war against Armenia in 2020, after a nine-month blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan on Tuesday overrunning the enclave in a lightning offensive that's uh, offered no choice to Armenian separatists but to uh, start to lay down their arms, according to Russia. They've started even handing over uh, military vehicles and negotiate what negotiate what looks like a surrender for the 120,000 residents of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, a simple question as they look towards the future, should they stay? Or should they go? Hello. I'm Gaia. And now I'm in Artsakh. And thanks God I'm at home, not in the basement. Because they call it ceasefire. I call it black hours. Because these hours we are reaching uh, some lists of the fallen soldiers. And when you're reading this list, you can see your friend name your relatives, just people who were, who used to live here, who used to be happy here, who used to, I don't know, just live in their homeland. And it's a fact, but there are no more here, there are no more alive. And you have to live with this. I'm sharing my thoughts, my feelings with you because I really want to help my land, to help my people. I don't know how I can do this, but I really want to. Now, that heartfelt exchange was from two days ago, uh, Aisha Gulsert, and uh, as the days go by, we still don't quite know what the toll was uh, of that lightning offensive on Tuesday, but there's shock uh, uh, on the side of the... uh, uh, of the Armenians, both in Nagorno-Karabakh and... uh, over in the country itself. I think this is a moment where we should say enough is enough. I mean, what the Armenians have been going through, not only in terms of the history, but what they've been going through uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh since actually 1923, and then when the Soviet Union fell apart, and then when the independent status quo was given to Nagorno-Karabakh in, what, 94? Then I remember very well, 2016, when again the Azerbaijan, uh, the Armenian conflict actually really got even worse uh, than 2020, than 2022, and now. They've been actually 
I say enough is enough, not, not from the perspective of the Azerbaijan, because Azerbaijan has shown with the, with the Turks that they will not stop here. That not only this is a cleansing, this, but also uh, this is a desire to take land, but also to make sure that, that there's a demographic change in, this, in, in, in the sphere. Countries of the West, just uh, countries like France, Russia, the United States, which are a part of the Minsk organization, are supposed to do in a way to find a solution that what we have seen just now that you have shown with these young women talking should not be happening right now. Uh, Azerbaijan's president insists that uh, uh, he's, he's working on a deal where everybody can stay. And he's even promised, and this is a quote, to turn Nagorno-Karabakh into a paradise. Uh, he was speaking uh, two nights ago. Uh, this as those negotiations over a possible amnesty were just getting underway. I have said, the Armenian people living in Azerbaijan are our citizens. Simply, Armenian nationalists, war criminals, leaders of Armenia and Karabakh took these people hostage, poisoned their brains. Amar Abed Rabo, your thoughts? Uh, it's terrible because it happens in the middle of the week of the United Nations General Assembly. There are many things happening. You mentioned the royal visit in France that took a lot of media time consuming, etc. So almost nobody, I mean, very, very few people really paid attention and were uh, disturbed by this, this uh, terrible move. Now we wake up a little bit and we are all being a bit more uh, uh, looking at what's happening and trying to, to, to react. Um, something funny caught my attention in, in, in the French media is someone who said, oh, after, after Putin's move in Ukraine, now it's like a jungle anybody can move into next territory or something like that. Because that's not what the Armenians are saying. They're saying yeah. that they saw it coming. They say that, but, but when you think about it, I mean, it's uh, uh, 20 years ago we had Iraq. Uh, for a long time we had Netanyahu in Israel doing as many uh, airstrikes, etc., etc., and nobody cares. So it's funny to just think about Putin's move in Ukraine and not all the moves that we've been seeing in the last 25 or 30 years that Prepare in a way. I mean, I remember what Villepin used to say in, in, in the, the UN, the French, foreign, uh, uh, the French foreign minister then, saying, if we let the U.S. go into Iraq without a U.N. mandate, then it will be a jungle where every single country who has the force will do a de facto situation. So you're you know, saying Ukraine there. is a new Pandora's box for a lot of other things? I say it's much, it's much prior to Ukraine. I mean, of course, Ukraine, uh, I personally, you know how much I'm, I'm linked to Syria and, 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 and Syria prepared for Ukraine, let's say. But before Syria, there was Iraq. There were other countries that, uh, that are not Putin's uh, work, but they, are, they were also terrible and they were preparing for this jungle, let's say. And today it's very complicated to tell uh, to, to Mr. Aliyev to leave because uh, he has no right to do so. All right. Azerbaijan's president uh, there, who we heard over in Yerevan, the opposition's been protesting against a prime minister forced to make do with the new facts on the ground. Nicole Pashinyan, in his remarks, angry at Russia, a broker of that uh, uh, peace mechanism that uh, Aishagul was alluding to, uh, and angry at its 2,000 peacekeepers who failed to stop Baku's forces. 
If the peacekeepers managed to negotiate a ceasefire, then why didn't they manage to negotiate an agreement to prevent the attack on Nagorno-Karabakh? We were warning about it. Why didn't they fulfill their peacekeeping functions? Nico Hines, your reaction? Yeah, well, it's very interesting to hear the dynamics here play out because it's very unclear exactly how much anyone on the Armenian side wanted to fight for Nagorno-Karabakh. It, it seems as though um, the Prime Minister Pashinyan ha had certainly indicated earlier this year that they had basically given up this cause. And interestingly, only a few weeks before the actions that have taken place over the last few days, Pashinyan told, the, told Politico that he knew that Putin and Russia would do nothing to protect Nagorno-Karabakh, which in a way was getting his dissent in there, getting his complaint to Moscow, and, and Moscow rebuffed what he said immediately. But what it was also doing was almost waving the white flag and saying to Azerbaijan, backed by Turkey, hey, we're not going to put up a fight, you can just roll in and there's not much that's going to be done. It, I think on the bright side of what's happened here, it looks as though it was only a day or two of, of violence. I know it was unpalatable and people, civilians do seem to have died, although we don't know the exact numbers. But when you compare it to the absolute misery and drudgery of this ongoing conflict in Ukraine, hopefully at least we can get a peaceful solution quickly, even if it's one that um, has shown that might uh, was ultimately, will ultimately prevail. Richard Verdi. Well, sorry to say, but we have to look at ourselves, the European Union and the French, because we saw it coming. It was very clear that uh, the president of Azerbaijan, with Turkey on his side, will take advantage as soon as possible of the situation created by the war in Ukraine. And the situation is not only that we are in a jungle, the situation is that we need Azeri gas. And an agreement was signed, a new agreement was signed by Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, in July 2022, so few months after the uh, Russian aggression on Ukraine, to raise by 30% the volume of gas import from Azerbaijan to the EU. So it's very clear that Azerbaijan got the leverage that they wanted. They have now the political leverage. And I would not be surprised, I'm not saying I know it for a fact, but I would not be surprised if Europeans were warned and were told what would happen by Azerbaijan itself. Uh, at the moment, it's, it's again very clear that Armenia has lost. Armenia has lost its protector, Russia. They are too busy with Ukraine, and we know why. And Azerbaijan has a green light because they... they and, you note that we are approaching winter, and it's not a surprise that these offensives take place now. So to me, that's a chapter that was ready to be written, and Aliyev decided to write it. And it happens, as Amar Abedrabo says, during UN week, uh, world leaders in New York watching Tuesday's uh, history-making uh, events while they're at the UN General Assembly. Many there uh, made pronouncements calling for restraint. There was, though, one cheerleader. We support the steps taken by Azerbaijan, where we act with the motto of one state, two nations, to protect its territorial integrity. Uh, listening to Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, what are the hopes that maybe 
now perhaps at least they can sit down and, and they are negotiating. Oh, by the way, this is uh, day two or three of, uh, of, the, of negotiations. Uh, when you listen to Recep Tayyip Erdogan, your thoughts? Well, I'm trying not to listen to him. Um, what a couple of things that ha that have been said. First of all, yes, there's the gas that Richard Verli ver very rightfully so mentioned. There's also, since Amar said. The well, Turkey has not accepted that, but we we more or less know from sources on, on, on the terrain that there have been more than 850 mercenaries, Syrian mercenaries, that have been sent by Turkey along with drones and weaponry to Nagorno-Karabakh, to Azerbaijan, in order to have a stronger hand in Nagorno-Karabakh. The problem I have is that, yes, this has been written not only for a couple of years, this has been written for decades, what's going on right now, and we are letting it just happen. But the fact that there's, there are all these talks of ceasefire, peacemaking mission, you know, I don't believe it anymore because what we have right now, which is the most important, is the first video that you have shown is the humanitarian situation, which means that 90, more than 90% of people who lived in Nagorno-Karabakh were of Armenian origin, even if it were under you know, the land or the, 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 the directorate of, of Azerbaijan, which means that what, right now what is happening is a humanitarian international crime. What is the West going to do to that? That's what I want to hear. All right. Nothing. The West will do nothing. That's the short answer there. Uh, absent from UN week uh, this year, by the way, leaders of Russia, China, France and the UK. There was, however, a main attraction, Volodymyr Zelensky making the trip to New York for the first time since last year's uh, uh, Russian invasion. He at one point even stared down Moscow's U.N. ambassador during a special session of the Security Council. Over at the General Assembly, though, Ukraine's president also directing his wrath at Hungary, Poland and Slovakia for defying the EU's lifting of a grain import ban. It is alarming to see how some in Europe, some our friends in Europe, play out solidarity in political theater, making thriller from the green. They are helping, helping set the stage to a Moscow actor. Richard Verli airing dirty laundry in public, uh, Ukraine and its uh, three of its NATO allies there. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's tough for Zelensky at the moment. And for the first time, I would say he may have miscommunicated at the UN. Uh, he used to be, and he's He's still probably the master of communication. He has managed to have a very good public relations campaign since the beginning of the war. But addressing the UN the way he did and blaming the United Nations and blaming in front of the General Assembly some close friend, very close friend like Poland, I don't think was a very good tactic. We can understand why he is angry. He has many reasons to be. But don't forget what Poland has done for Ukraine and is still doing for Ukraine. You don't say such thing in front of the the General Assembly, and it may backfire because I understand the relationship now are really not good between uh, Warsaw and Kiev. Um, and per the United States and per Joe Biden, apparently he just got the promise of delivery of what was before uh, already ordered. So the the tank, the Abrams tank, and nothing talk of, reported to talk about long range missiles. Well, long range missiles, but they are not yet in the pipeline. Mm. So so we'll see. So uh, warning, communication warning and diplomatic warning for Zelensky, he may kind of regain some uh, uh, more moderate temper. He was probably too hot-tempered for this UN General Assembly. Too, too hot-tempered. Um, uh, Poland is 
three weeks out from a general election. So this argument over over grain, this, that's one of the factors. But do you agree with what Richard Verli just said? I agree with Richard. I guess it's, let's say, clumsy, or uh, in French you say maladroit. It's not very clever, maybe, to, to go this way. But, well, I understand also Zelensky in a very, very uh, frustrating position. I mean, for, for a long time, so many promises, uh, so little done and, and late, uh, very often. Uh, I was... Uh, in Kiev in, in February, that's already eight months ago or, or seven months ago, and I feel that when I read the news, it's always the same thing, like, oh, uh, uh, the Abrams are coming, oh, the Abrams are almost there, oh, the Abrams are signed, or oh, the Abrams, and okay, so it doesn't change a lot. Uh, for, for me, again, I'm always sorry to bring you back to the Middle East, but the, 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 the speech he gave at the General Assembly, there was one sentence that was very interesting. He says, I mean, we always link what happened in Ukraine to what happened in Syria, because we, we, we believe it was a kind of laboratory of, uh, of what's going to happen. And he said something very interesting. He said, Russia destroyed Syria. Uh, and then he said, uh, without Russia, no chemical weapons would have been used in Syria. And this is the first time I hear this, and it's quite interesting that it comes from Zelensky uh, at this moment. I mean, we, we still, uh, the, 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 the chemical attacks in Syria were 10 years ago. And, of course, we never, we cannot go back in history and change things. But still, it's always interesting to imagine what if, you know, what if we did respect what Obama said, the, the red lines, you know, and in a way... Zelensky reminds us of the red lines and reminds us also what Richard just said a few minutes ago. West will do nothing about Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, red, red lines about Syria, red lines about Ukraine. How much do you help? Do you seem to be, does it create another escalation? This is the quandary where that the West is in. I mean, I find uh, President Zelensky really incredibly uh, good at what he's doing since the very beginning. Because just like as he hasn't he, lost his touch, he hasn't lost his touch, and he's he knows exactly how the West functions. That's why he keeps pushing it maybe a little too hard sometimes because it's it's inevitably really frustrating to be looking at this you know at a senate or at the united nations assembly and say come on guys this is not only my war this is your war mm. the the answer from poland though i must say the fact that they decided with the grain deal and with the fact that they're going to slow down on, on on the on the weapons they said that they will be sending whatever they promised that poland will be sending whatever they promised to ukraine uh, but that they will now take care of Poland first. And as you mentioned, October 15th, there are parliamentary elections in Poland. So they have to, in a way, also talk to their domestic issues. Yeah, and there's elections next year in the United States, we're told. It's uh, to ward <laughs> off Ukraine fatigue <laughs> that Zelensky returned to Washington for the second time in nine months. He got a White House welcome, uh, as well as uh, new funding, Richard was talking about it a moment ago, from the Biden administration. Far from the cameras this time, with pro-Trump isolationists growing increasingly vocal, Zelensky also had to lobby Congress and convince a Republican majority that's already having a hard time agreeing with itself on defense spending. A lot of this doubt lies on President Biden. He hasn't made the case to the American public. What is victory? What does it take to be able to win? But I believe when we're looking at where we're going right now, Zelensky has answered a lot of questions for me. Interesting, uh, Nico Hines, because uh, uh, the, Kevin McCarthy there, uh, a lot more conciliatory towards Ukraine than he was the day before. Uh, so uh, the, that, that Zelensky magic that uh, 
uh, Aisha Gore was mentioning, seems to still be working. Does he have a point uh, when he says that uh, uh, Joe Biden hasn't defined what victory is in Ukraine? Well, I think McCarthy's always a lot of different faces to a lot of different people. That's the nature of his job, trying to control the kind of crazy band of wild cats that are in his uh, Republican caucus. Um, so he, he's always got to uh, give different lines depending on his audience. I think he's got a bit of a cheek to try and suggest that Zelensky hasn't got enough of a strategic over <laughs> plan for how to win this war. Um, it's not really... Joe Biden's job to tell Zelensky how to win this war either. The job of the United States is to support a defensive action against an invasion, a hostile invasion by a, another superpower. Um, so, no, I don't think McCarthy's got a point. And I think, you know, Zelensky did say um, in one of his interviews after he'd met with McCarthy, he came out and said, McCarthy told me that he'd be on my side. Um, and I think you've got to hope that ultimately with the combination of the sensible Republicans and the Democratic, Democratic um, politicians that there should be enough of a consensus there to get through this um, huge new kind of $2 billion bill that they're trying to get through. And maybe they'll have to water it down slightly and, and do concession, you, make it 1.5 do you agree with do you agree with Aishagul that uh, Zelensky still has that magic touch yeah absolutely and he went into the National Archives and he um, looked these old-fashioned politicians in the eye and he he did the thing that they always love which is to quote an old American president <laughs> he quoted Abraham Lincoln and said that he had apparently written to one of his generals during the Civil War, your job now is to hold on with the grip of a bulldog, um, and that he would do the same thing as they try and fight off the Russians. I think he knows how to appeal. And I just love the idea that while he's in Kiev, you know, directing a, a kind of a war, uh, that he's also got researchers working on ways to appeal to the kind of septuagenarian senators. <laughs> Zelensky's North American tour concluding in Canada, home to a sizable Ukrainian community this Friday. Speaking of diasporas, a major diplomatic row erupted Monday when the Canadian Prime Minister got up to speak in Parliament. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Talk about a bombshell announcement, uh, Richard Verli. The Canadians we spoke to earlier this week said nobody expected this when he, when he stood up. Uh, relations hadn't been great. They didn't quite understand why a trade deal between the two countries hadn't been completed. But uh, this June killing of uh, this uh, Sikh activist outside uh, Vancouver who has Canadian citizenship uh, coming to the fore. And now we've had, you know, the, uh, this, these uh, implications that uh, uh, other intelligence services from the so-called Five Eyes allies knew uh, that something was amiss. 
Well, two things on that. First of all, um, I'm not an expert, certainly not on uh, Canada-India relation, but I suspect there are probably uh, internal political reasons for Trudeau to come up with his story the way he did. He is probably under pressure, uh, sick Uh, politicians are quite prominent in Canada, they play an active role, and I suspect that there were some, let's say, reason behind the scene that, that brought him to uh, directly provoke in a way, the Indian government. Secondly, um, I, I'm not too surprised. You have in India a government with Modi that is not yet autocratic, but tending to become more and more autocratic. And, and the fact that this government would order its intelligence agency to, to eradicate opponents abroad makes sense because Modi has managed to curb the opposition at home in India. He is apparently uh, getting all the... Okay, but there, but there is a problem here. And the problem is we don't know, he hasn't said what this exact proof is. Well, that's why I believe there are some political things that we don't know. But to, for a prime minister to say it this way, you believe he would say it if he doesn't have the proof? Right, Justin Trudeau was uh, one of the few leaders who didn't have a, a sideline uh, bilateral meeting with Narendra Modi when India just recently hosted the G20 summit. And it's not like scheduling was too tight. After all, the Canadian prime minister's plane broke down on Sunday night after leaving, keeping him stuck on the tarmac in Delhi for more than 36 uh, hours, Aisha Gould said. So the writing was on the wall. We just didn't see it at the time. Well, signs, signs and signs. <laughs> They're everywhere. The thing is that, yes, he didn't have the one-to-one -one, uh, time with Modi, uh, Justin Trudeau. But to come back to what uh, my dear neighbor Richard Verli just said, the relations between You know, let's not forget, Canada is the country that outside of India, there is the largest community of people of Indian, you know, descent. When in 2015, um, Justin, Justin Trudeau came, to, pow came to, to, to power, of his cabinet members that were 34 of them were Sikhs. So uh, 2% of the population in Canada is are, are Sikhs. So this is something that... that, that He has to speak about. I completely agree. If he didn't have a proof, and I wonder if he didn't even check it with the Americans before talking like this, um, he wouldn't have said it. So there is something. And he is right to say it. I mean, this is an American citizen that has been killed on the soil. It's so normal that there's an investigation that is going to happen. The Financial Times reporting this Friday that uh, Joe Biden talked about these allegations directly with Modi during the G20 summit. So something is up, we just don't know what it is, Amar Abed Rabin. Tell it's us, Amar, <laughs> tell us. <laughs> what do you know? I'm, I'm like Risha, I'm not a specialist of, of Canadian Indian, but it's, it's funny when you look at the, the titles, let's say, and um, it's funny that uh, Trudeau has been, I don't know if he lost the magic touch uh, or if he still has it like uh, Zelensky, but he's been for the last uh, 10 years uh, like the symbol of, of coolitude, let's say, you know, of a cool power, someone who who's hated by... I like by, that, coolitude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a French-English. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's someone who, who, who really is the opposite of what uh, far-right conservative uh, people everywhere in the world uh, would like. And on the other hand, Modi is exactly 
the, the opposite. I mean, he's, he's someone who's very much uh, either autocratic or going to be or wannabe autocratic. Well, certainly and, very charismatic. And still very charismatic, absolutely. But uh, both are. But, uh, but the clash, I mean, with two uh, world symbol of uh, yeah, quite opposite people it are, is very interesting. Trudeau insists he's not looking to escalate tensions. News reports, though, suggesting that, uh, again, uh, other intelligence services picked up on this. This is a story which we say journalistic parlance has legs on it. Uh, and uh, uh, the fact that it was brought up by others at the G20, uh, well, just one of the reasons that the Indian government is fuming. Uh, if there is any country, if you're talking about reputational uh, issues and reputational damage, if there's one, any country that uh, needs to look at this, I think it is Canada and its growing reputation as a place, uh, as a safe haven for terrorists, for extremists, and for organized crime. And I think that's a country that needs to worry about its uh, international reputation. Nico Hines, should Canada worry about its international reputation? Well, it would be good if everybody did, but um, I think um, it was important and right for Trudeau to call out these claims. I don't believe for a second that they don't have absolutely compelling evidence. I don't believe he would have said anything like this uh, unless the proof was there. And it's not always the case that you can share that proof. Um, you know, I know that we've come over the last... 20 or so years, we've come to distrust um, everybody's intelligence services and don't necessarily take these things at face value. But I think you have to assume that there's no way Trudeau, it would have been in Trudeau's interests to raise this unless it was true. And the fact that Biden has said it to Modi's face, again, an absolutely crucial um, piece of evidence that shows us that there must be truth behind these allegations. And I think what's disappointing for Canada has been that there has been virtually no public support for what Trudeau came out and said. The Indians have gone absolutely ballistic, um, making all sorts of threats, uh, as well as expelling diplomats and, and such like. But no one else has put their head above the parapet. I'm sure Trudeau will be disappointed, and I'm sure his people will have been urging Biden and Rishi Sunak and Macron and anyone else who might have um, reason to have been shown sufficient evidence to actually come out publicly and, and back these claims. But the deafening silence... Except for, except for Nico, some, some language coming from the U.S. State Department, which affirms we don't have all the facts yet, but we stand by Canada as a staunch ally, sort of suggesting uh, that uh, uh, there is, as you say, uh, a fire to accompany the smoke. Absolutely. I think between the lines, it's, it's pretty obvious that this has happened. And in fact, if you look at what the Indians have been saying, they've been on, on one hand, um, members of the ruling party have been saying things like, this is an outrage, how can anyone make such allegations? And then within the same sentence, they're saying, but this guy was a terrorist and basically got what he deserved. So I think even the Indians themselves are not exactly um, going out of their way to uh, distance themselves from such a crusade. You know, I think it's fair to say that this has been, you know, this whole Sikh movement and the Khalistan uh, independence has been a, a violent movement over decades. And it's sort of... Oh, fairly reasonable for them to claim that some of these people might be terrorists or have um, terrorist sympathies. Um, 
However, the way that they are talking about this man and his assassination makes it entirely clear to me what's happened. Just changing gears for a second, hard to believe that Rupert Murdoch is actually <laughs> retiring. Come mid-November, the 92-year-old media mogul <laughs> to hand over operations of uh, Fox, News Corp, uh, and the rest of his uh, empire to his son Lachlan, uh, the Australian-born uh, magnet, putting out a statement on Thursday where he said, for my entire professional life, I've been engaged daily with news and ideas, and that will not change. That will not change, but the time is right for me to take on different roles. He's uh, staying at the head of his uh, family trust. Aishikul Sert, is he really retiring Rupert Murdoch? Remember that Lenny Kravitz song in the 90s, It Ain't Over Till It's Over? <laughs> and I think that's exactly, you know, it goes very well as a soundtrack to this news. Uh, in the sense of he's never going to let that power, that power that he has been holding on for all these decades, that he has actually created because he had just inherited, I think, one small newspaper from his father in Australia, and then he made, uh, you know, he made a dynasty out of it. He's never going to let that go away, even to his blood and to his family and to his sons. He's always symbolically, I think, it has something to say, hey, I'm staying out of it. But the influence that he has had in Australia, in the US and in the UK for all these decades, man, that's addictive. You don't just let it go. As, as an alumnus of the News Corporation, uh, Nico Hines, do you see uh, Rupert Murdoch handing over the reins? I think it's very interesting that he has chosen to hand the reins over while he's still in control of it. Because I think, um, depending on what you believe, it seems as though once he dies, um, his children kind of get, his four eldest children get one vote each as to what to do with the company. Um, and therefore, Lachlan, his favoured son, um, would, would quite possibly be outvoted by the other three who are, believe, certainly two of them, um, James and Elizabeth are certainly more on the liberal side of the equation and may make a decision that Rupert wouldn't approve of. Um, so it might be the case that he's realised that if he um, uses his power to actually anoint his chosen son, um, then they, they can't do anything about it. And it maybe gives him, I don't know, how long is Rupert going to live? Another 10 years? Another five years? Who knows? But it might be long enough for Lachlan to entrench himself in that position with his dad still having the power over the family trust to make sure that the son that he wanted to win it still wins it. You know, listening to Nico, uh, Richard Valli, I'm saying... This, uh, the family dynamics, it's got the makings of a good TV series. Well, I think it did. It has inspired several TV shows already. Um, and and I, what, what Nico said is very interesting. Apparently, by retiring officially now, he's actually making a very big business and political decision for his empire. So that, that is smart. Um, will he be engaged on a day-to-day basis? I we may doubt it a bit, you know, 92 years old. We don't know his, um, his health and so on. To me, the most striking things is that Robert Murdoch, uh, he's getting so much attention worldwide. And the fact that he's retiring again at 92 years old shows that he is one of the most powerful men in this planet 
today. And that shows how communication is dominating politics. And the fact that we all believe uh, when a mogul, as you say, uh, a media tycoon is retiring, it may be more, even more important than when a president or when a prime minister is resigning. So let's think of it. The proof that Murdoch is clearly the man to follow in world politics. Let, let's talk about that power for a second. It's not all tributes pouring in from Murdoch's native Australia. He's built a vast global media empire, and no doubt the business pages will give him credit for that. But he has done enormous damage uh, to the democratic world, and in particular to the United States. Malcolm Turnbull going on to... Uh uh, publicly named Fox News as a, a, a history-changing outlet uh, when it comes to uh, the course of, of U.S. politics. Is that shooting the messenger? <laughs> In this case, it's complicated because uh, it's the, the, the egg or the chicken, you know. I mean, is it, uh, is it Fox that represent the, 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 the audience or is the audience that, that made Fox? It's, uh, it's a very interesting philosophical question. But honestly, when you look at the empire today, uh, as democratic but also as a journalist, as a simple journalist, it's... It's a pitiful place, you know, it's a pitiful legacy. It's well, okay, there are figures, there are viewers, there's money, of course, but what, what is the damage, what is the, 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 the karma, let's say, that comes out of this? A power. It's a story of power. It is. And is it down to one man? Well, it's one man who has a lot of connections in politics, but also in business. Uh, he has made some politicians and some businessmen even more influential, and they have made sure that he stays in power. So it's, it's the thing is that Fox is also, remember a couple of years ago, the big uh, you know, uh, problem that they had with Roger Ellis? Was Roger Ailes. Exactly, who was um, with the Me Too movement. Uh, let's not forget also that I think where he has been so smart, I'm not saying very good journalistically, I'm saying smart in terms of business, is that he has been able to bring the low media communication and the high media communication, which means the ta he had tabloids, but he also had something like the Wall Street Journal. So he knew exactly how to, how to bounce between the two. And hey, money, politics, power, media, they go together. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch's always been unabashed about his uh, personal politics, but also pragmatic. Let's go all the way back to the 1960s and his News of the World newspaper publishing the diaries of Christine Keeler and Britain's Profumo scandal. Uh, Murdoch at the time making it crystal clear that he's first and foremost, as Aishigul was saying, a businessman. Everybody knows what happened. Um, certainly it's going to sell newspapers. And then the other stories we'll, 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 we'll put in which will sell newspapers. So we're not ashamed of that. We'll sell newspapers. We're not ashamed of that. You know, as a photojournalist, I'm Robert Rabo. You know, you, you deal with highbrow stories and also tabloid stories. We, and we love both, right? So what do you, do you grudgingly we love take both, his but point we, uh, when, he, when he says, look, we're going to sell newspapers? I mean, personally, I, I, I don't, uh, every good story that sells is not a good story. You know, I mean, sometimes you have to say no to a very good story that would sell. But that's ethically terrible, that could destroy a family or that could destroy uh, a people or whatever. So, yeah, I don't really agree with that. But this is very personal. I know today business is business. And also even all this empire of print, let's say, is being 
is suffering from all the anonymous who have their uh, Instagram and, and, and Twitter X uh, account and who don't care about anything that sells or doesn't sell. You know, they, they Nico just, Hines, when you listen to that clip of Rupert Murdoch circa 1968, what's your thought? Well, I think you have to say about him is, is that he was a man who loved newspapers. Mm. And that's something that's pretty much gone out of fashion these days. Um, you know, it was the Times that I worked for for about eight years. I remember um, it was one of my very first days in the office and um, this figure came into the room and sat down at the desk right opposite me. I was only a kid and it was <laughs> Rupert Murdoch and he was running the rule over the New Times website, um, which I was working on at the time. And I was absolutely terrified. Pretty much everyone in the room was absolutely terrified. But what's interesting about what's happened is that the Times, since he bought it, the Times has lost money for about 40 years. And since the revamped website, which he was one of the first to say, actually, we need to do subscriptions because that's the way to, you know, a paywall is the way to make news pay. And every, pretty much all the other media organizations said, no, no, news has to be free to everyone. He put the subscription um, plan in place and the Times now for the first time in about half a century is now a profit-making organization and the Times is a great newspaper that does create great stories and, and break in really important news so I know that everyone wants to bash Murdoch and, and there's lots of things at Fox News that are absolutely appalling um, but he has also done um, some very positive things for the news business. Richard Verli, a final word? I would agree. I would agree. He was, he was a man of media. He was a man of newspaper. You're talking about him in yeah, the past? Yeah, he's, he's still the hero, no. you know. Well, <laughs> well I, no, no. I don't think he's going to end his empire day, day by day now. He's, he's kind of Stock price went up back. when he announced yeah, that he was leaving. But what, what was said, I believe, is very important. Maybe the problem is that there was no Murdoch on the other camp, the progressive camp. I mean, having Murdoch on the very conservative, reactionary camp is one thing, but who was in, in front of Murdoch to oppose him? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why the progressive newspaper? Well, maybe Zuckerberg, but can we qualify Zuckerberg as a man of newspaper like Nico said about Murdoch? I doubt it. I believe it there for now. I want to thank you so much, uh, Richard Verli, Aisha Gulsert, Amar Abed Rabo, Nico Hines for being with us from London. Thank you for joining us here for The World This Week.